Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And our featured guest on today's show is Wenyan Lu, talking about her debut novel, The Funeral Crier. We'll hear from Sally Harris on her gothic ghost story, Seahurst. And Melanie Levinson will be chatting about her novel, A Jewish Girl in Paris. Wenyan will give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Lovely to have you here. And I noted during the research for this show, we're going to be talking about your debut novel, The Funeral Crier, but you have an unpublished historical novel that's been long-listed for numerous awards. What's happening to that? Will we read that at some point? Uh, Nothing is really happening to it, but I hope it will be published one day. Since it was long-listed, I have been editing it. I think it's better. However, I am still working on it. It was a historical novel about a Chinese role model in the 1950s and the Chairman Mao's role model. When I was little and my generation, we used to have a little red book uh, with quotes and everybody had to learn them. Even if you didn't understand what the quotes meant, you had to do it. I couldn't understand a lot of them. For example, one of them was, uh, revolution is not inviting you to a dinner party. It's not about embroidery or something like that. I thought, (laughs) no, I I know it's not. (laughs) Now I understand it uh, more and it's quite interesting to see that and the the story was sad because the martyr of course he died very young but the book was quite funny as well in many ways and I, I really like it I think also from the perspective of history and the culture and the people uh, more people should know and understand all what has happened in other worlds not just uh, your own culture. And you're from Shanghai, uh, China. How big an influence does your culture and your heritage have on your writing? Pretty big by the sound of it. Mm, when I first came to the UK, living in in a country quite different from China, I was quite excited. For me, it was more like I wanted to be part of it. And uh, I still want to be part of it in the way I am part of it, but I am more confident. My culture makes makes me realize who I am. I'm not representing a country or a culture, but as myself, I have got my own opinions, I've got my stories, I want my voice to be heard. Well, we're going to hear that voice throughout uh, this show. We're going to listen to your first choice of music now. Is music important to you? Music is very important uh, in my life. I I think when I'm not happy or when I sometimes I think, oh, somebody has made me cross, I want to calm down and then I listen to music and then it's all gone. And what about this one then? Would you listen to this uh, if somebody's made you cross? This is Moonlight Sonata, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Why this one? <laughs> 
because really it's relaxing and also I like to listen to it when when I'm doing nothing uh, when I'm or drinking tea and relaxing. And that was Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Wen Yan Lu. Wen Yan is the winner of the 2020 SI Leeds Literary Prize. Her debut novel, The Funeral Crier, is out this month. Described as a combination of Flaubert's Madame Bovary and Anne Bray's Pork, ID magazine called it a refreshing perspective on mourning as well as a moving tale of a social outcast. And we'll come back to that quote in just a moment. As I say, it's just out. I'm sure there'll be more rave reviews because uh, I enjoyed this novel very much. So as it's just out, uh, Wenyan, could you tell us what it's about for people who haven't already read it? Yeah, my book... It's titled The Funeral Cry, so it's quite obvious. Um, it's about this funeral cry. And uh, she is paid to cry at funerals to create a sad atmosphere. She doesn't like her job, but she has no choice. And she has no friends because of her job. People think she carries deadly atmosphere and also... She would give people bad luck and uh, she didn't have a good relationship with her husband. So her life is quite sad. When she goes to different funerals and she witnesses other people's sorrow and grief, sometimes conflict and secrets as well, she observes her world. It's in a way not really much happening but a lot of things are happening inside her she talks to herself a lot she wants to communicate with people she wants to be loved but she is quite isolated apart from going to funerals and this is based on an, a natural role this is a, a traditional chinese role yeah um i'm from shanghai in a big city i don't think uh, people would hire somebody to go to a funeral, but usually in villages. When somebody dies and the funeral takes place in the village, it's like a big family. And it would always be a woman, would it? I'm not quite sure, but I would think mostly women, because when a man cries, they might not think... It's genuine. For, so if a lady starts crying and the other ladies will start crying and the family, they will all cry. So that's the purpose of the role, really, to encourage others to cry. Yeah, and also towards the end, there will be some entertainment. Usually they will sing. Sometimes there would be some bands, not professional, but they will just make some noisy chaotic noise however in my book I don't have this band uh, because it's not TV or film I think for a novel um, I I don't want to have a band there and uh, also for the funeral cry she sings and uh, at some point it's uh, like 
an experience for the funeral goers. Usually, you you give like some funeral money to the bereaved family. So, at some point, you pay to go. So, people will be happy coming home. I mean, it's it's a kind of exploration of grief and and bereavement as well, centering on this figure of the funeral crier, because. She obviously doesn't know the people who have died. So this emotion that she's expressing is false emotion, really, isn't it? But that doesn't seem to matter. No, uh, because uh, sometimes it's for her. It is a good way to release her sorrow. That's her value as well, because people need her. And she does a good job. She doesn't really like it. But when she does it, and uh, she does it properly and... uh, she, at some point, enjoys it. There are lots of rituals around death and funerals in China. I hadn't realised quite so many that you cover in this book. It really is a very important part, a ritualistic part of life or the life cycle. I'm always interested in history. Uh, so actually, there are more rituals than uh, what I've written here. And this one was quite... I, when I was little, I, I I thought it was quite scary. And uh, also, I didn't think it was genuine, so it was very odd. But now I'm older, also after I've written this book, I think uh, I understand that. And also, sometimes maybe people do need somebody to do that for them. Because in China, or in many other cultures, when somebody dies and the bereaved family and also the relatives and the friends, they need to show, need to show that they are upset. They they need to show that they are very sad. But it could be quite awkward. They don't know how they should show it and also how much they should show it. A professional crier will actually do the job for them. And so she wears a special outfit that you talk about in the novel and she addresses the coffin and then cries at the coffin yes uh, that's why people don't really want to have anything to do with her because she is uh, associated with uh, death is that true i mean that as i say that that quote there said she's a social outcast and, and in the novel people see her as as a sign of bad luck that is true is it i think it depends i have done some research and uh also, once I read about somebody who worked in the crematoria, he actually said that he made sure he didn't shake hands with other people. A lot of people are still superstitious, so they don't want to have anything to do with somebody who is a funeral cry, and it's always about death. Even if they think she's going to be fine, and I like her or something, uh, because other people don't like her. It's very hard, I think. I I don't really know too much about this because they, they're not much official information. But they are actually paid a decent money to do it. And uh, also they're judged whether they're good if they're, their crying sounds genuine, like a... Uh, good actor so they would employ her but not necessarily want to socialize with her. i mean she says herself she's sort of internalized it herself and she says i wouldn't yeah. go to a funeral crier's house myself 
Yeah, that that that's uh, I think uh, says it. Yeah, and even in a, her own family, think this in in your novel. Her mum doesn't mind, and uh, her brother probably doesn't mind too much. But they don't live in the same house. They don't see each other that much. The husband. Because he doesn't work, he minds, but he doesn't mind. I love the mother, by the way. She's just such a, <laughs> a great grab it kind of character. I love it. Uh, and you talked about research then. Did you actually manage to speak to any of these funeral cries? No, unfortunately, because I don't know where to find them. And there are not many there. And the, the book is set in northeast China, but I have never been there. I spoke to a friend who is from North China, a village. Actually, the village name is her village name. I'm very pleased about this because when she told me what her village was called, I just said to her, you sure your village is called Xinyihe? It's a western mud river. You, you're, <laughs> This is your village? She said, yeah. And uh, I said... What do you think of it? She said, I never think about anything about it. And she's like, oh, actually, the mountains near her village, she said, yeah, I, we don't care about the mountains there. Nothing there. I love the names of the villages in here. They're quite, as you say, startling at times, but also quite beautiful. Are they real? Is this a real area of China? Uh, yeah, it, it is real. I did ask her about my friend. I did ask her about what the village is like and uh, do people like their village? I don't think uh, they're interested in their own village. They just want to leave like my friend. She's in England now. Thank you, Wenyan. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment, but we'll stay with location, actually, as we speak to Sally Harris. Sally's debut novel, Haverscroft, came out in 2019. It was long listed for the Not the Booker Prize Awards and was Prima Magazine's recommended read for Halloween. Seahurst is out this month, and when I met Sally, we started by talking about the novel's striking cover. Cover of this book, I love the cover of this book. What is this a picture of, do you know? Well, it's a ruin, partly because that's a big part of the story. When the main character comes back to her late father's summer home, it's overshadowed by a huge ruin of a priory, or an abbey as it is in the book, which is based on Greyfriars Priory in um, Dunwich. So she sees quite a lot of action around the ruins, And one particular important point is that she can see through a big archway through to the sea. So that's what Salt have tried to catch with that ruin. And this is a gothic ghost story, would you say? It is, yeah. So supernatural gothic fiction. And what's it about? You've sort of hinted there, but what's it about in more detail? The main character is Evie. She uh, is coming back from... She's not been in the UK for quite a while. She fell out with her family and she's coming back to try and reconcile with her half-brother at their late father's summer home that's set on the Suffolk coast, a modernist building all glass and steel, but as I say, overshadowed by the abbey. She arrives back, and not to have too many spoilers, she can't find him. The house is empty and it goes from there. Things have changed significantly since she's spent her childhood summers there. So gradually things unravel and Seahurst isn't the place she hoped it would be. And this is set in Suffolk, as you say. Why did you set it there? Well, I was born in Suffolk at Beckles, but spent an awful lot of time 
in my childhood at the coast, uh, anywhere between sort of Cove Hive and Minsmere, that whole stretch, if anyone knows the Suffolk coast. So I know Dunwich quite well. The novel is entirely fictional, but there are nods towards Southwold, Walberswick, a bit of Blytheborough, creeps in there, and Dunwich. I just love that area. So I went back there just for a day. I had a day off the other day and went back and had a walk all around there. It's just really lovely. I enjoy it there, but it, it's got that perfect sort of ghost story feel in that it's, you know, stark and very beautiful, but you could also think it's quite creepy. Is this your genre then? Because Haverscroft was a ghost story as well. I think so, yes. I'm trying to write a third at the moment, struggling with a first draft, but again, that is a ghost story. So I think really that's my area. And what is it about ghost stories? We love a good ghost story, don't we? What is it about ghost stories? There's a lot to it, really. I mean, you know, people probably watched Scooby-Doo when they were younger and ancestors are supposed to have told ghost stories and things around the campfires centuries ago. And we don't really know what's afterwards after we've died what's out there and I'm not particularly a religious person but it would nice be nice to think there is something there rather than just the end but um, I mean ghost stories give you the frights as well don't they that you know that spine chilling and and scary and strange as we are humans like that you know anyone that's got on a roller coaster ride or the big wheel you've not gone on there for a relaxing time what are the challenges for writing a ghost story then because uh, you have to keep that pace and suspense and revealing I suppose not too much yeah it's certainly building the tension as you go so you need a nice hint at the beginning that there's something that is perhaps going to be supernatural or spooky or, or however you're going to do it but I think the biggest challenge for me really is not to have too many cliches in there, not too many creaking doors and all of sort of the, the things that have been done before. Both my novels are, are contemporary, so I've avoided melodrama in the sort of Victorian sense, but it is just trying to keep it fresh, really, and new, so that it's a ghost story, but something that you haven't had before. And I suppose when it's contemporary, you do have things like uh, mobile phones that before when people were isolated, they really were isolated. Mm. But now you've got the kind of technology to contend with. Yeah, you can get round it. I mean, fortunately, um, parts of the Suffolk coast have the most dreadful <laughs> signal. Um, so you, your, your internet could be dodgy. Your phone signal can certainly fade out when you need it to go. So uh, you can't really have someone in a haunted house phoning for help very well. So there are ways round it, but that is a challenge that you need to, from my point of view, look at quite early on to make sure that I'm not going to get tripped up by technology. And there's something also about what we don't see as well. I suppose, you know, it's about persuading the reader to use their imagination that actually they might be imagining something worse than you're projecting. That was one of the things I took away from Haverscroft was that I suggested things and rather than saying deliberately there's a ghost rattling chains and things like that, it was more suggestion and I was surprised how readers went in various different directions with the same suggestion and some would find it absolutely dreadful, goodness knows what they thought it led to, whereas others would take it quite calmly and would perhaps be far more unsettled or spooked by something else that I hadn't really even given a lot of thought to. And round East Anglia, there is a tradition of ghost stories in this mm. area. We've got M.R. James and then there's other writers around around the Wash and around Norfolk and Suffolk. Yeah, I mean, M.R. James spent quite a lot of time. I, in fact, went past uh, Little Livermore, I think, where he lived yesterday. And he was at Alborough, and which is all very close to where I'm writing. 
Michelle Pavers Wakenhurst, I think I'm uh, saying that correctly, that's set somewhere in the fens and, and around. And I think really it's, it's just the landscape, that very flat, stark landscape and lots of marshes and whispering reeds and things like that just lend itself ideally, a, a bit like the woman in black and you know, the causeway. I know that's not Suffolk, but it's very bleak and very isolating. So it's perfect for, for ghost stories. And do you research ghost stories, local ghost stories, local tales? I do. I, I quite like to. There's a weird fiction site that I look at. They quite often come up with different tales. Uh, they'll go around and look at churches and find out the history of it and what terrible deeds happened there and why someone's still stuck there haunting away writing the genre you have to have an interest in it and I do find all that really quite fascinating. And this is very different to your day job. Oh completely different to the day job. I mean I I'm a have been a family law solicitor for a long long time. So you're dealing very much with facts and figures and I'd sort the money out, you know, there's a house and a pension and things. That's very factual side, but there is the emotional side of Nobody really comes to a divorce in a happy state, and there you know various levels of emotional trauma and upset that you're dealing with, which that can feed into a novel but um yeah, it's very, very different, and I find writing is a great way to unwind from that and you say you're writing a third at the moment. Are you able to say what what that's about a little more about that? Yes, that's also set on the coast, probably a little bit more towards the Norfolk Suffolk border. And more based on what I do in that the main character there is a district judge. So that's a judge in the, the lowest rank of judge in the county court. I've never sat as a as a judge, but I've seen lots in my time. So, um, yeah, she's having a fairly unpleasant time while she's trying to work her way through her cases. And what about you? Have you had any ghostly experiences? Are you a believer in ghosts? I would love to believe in them. I can't say I don't believe in them. I've never had a ghostly experience, really, but we live in a very old house and I was brought up in an old house. And it's easy then when you're there on your own to believe that there's something there. You hear creaks and groans and odd noises. My eldest son used to talk when he was very tiny, and I'm talking about a year to sort of age two years. He would refer to a lady in our front sitting room nobody was there I and mean, he'd point this out lady and there's nobody there and that was quite spooky because he was just too small to be making it up and he he can't remember anything now I and mean, he's in his 20s now so um I just wonder yeah Seahurst by Sally Harris is published by Salt we're talking on bookmark today to Wenyan Lu about her novel The Funeral Crier Wenyan this is written in a very particular style so very few of the characters are named and those with names they're not their real names they're sort of nicknames why did you write it in that style? so for example we have the funeral cry herself the husband the daughter the mother why did you write it in that style at first i didn't think about this style i tried to think of names but because if the names are in chinese they don't really make make sense in english and also, I when I'm writing, I do this, I do that. I see the husband. I I just don't like the husband, of course. Then I don't want want him to have a name. So I decided to say just the husband. So it started like that. And also, it's the distance uh, she's keeping from people. When you don't know somebody, 
you don't know the name. You don't know the name. Oh, you don't f- remember my name. I think it's important. It's like I don't care who you are. And you say a woman with no name hardly existed. It's almost like she's very distant from herself as well. Yeah, she knows that nobody cares about her. But she has got strength. Even if people don't care about her, she cares about herself. And uh, she is not like, I, I want to do this or that. Not very ambitious, but she tries her best to do something in her own range well enough. And the irony, of course, is that the only time she feels seen or listened to, really, is when she's doing the thing that means that she's a social outcast, which is when she's crying at funerals. That's the thing that gives her a presence in the world. Yes, and also um, because when families have somebody die, and of course it's a difficult time, and she's there to be helpful. This is quite a skilled job. She's dealing with, as you say, families at a time of great vulnerability. That's why uh, her background is actually she went to a secondary school and uh, she has been to big cities. She's not like illiterate or uh, very ignorant. And uh, I decided she is a clever woman, but she's actually stuck there. And you suggest at one point that the reason why people might not want to see her because of what she does is that it's because she sees people at times of vulnerability and she finds out secrets and frailties and weaknesses about them that they therefore don't want to see her again or know her because in a way she knows too much about them. Yes, uh, you're very spot on actually because uh, there's one woman in the story. I won't say too much, you know that. She actually says... I, I. Because you are a stranger, I'm telling you this. And uh, more than once, people actually tell her about something. Uh, it's a secret, yeah. And the political landscape of uh, this, because this is set in the present day. Yes. I mean, even though it feels like a, a very traditional culture and it's rural China, people have mobile phones and it's very clear that it's the present day. The political landscape, how much of that did you... Did you want to bring in? Did you feel comfortable bringing in or related to the story? Actually, it's quite interesting. I, I've i been thinking about this, especially uh, since pandemic. People communicate more online. People think it's fine. I can talk to you through Zoom or I can talk to you. young people. They play games and they talk at the same time. They don't need to go out. But uh, in the village, it's small and uh, some people are related actually and uh, still they like to have the like in-person contact so that's very important they still go to other people's houses like to play mahjong or to just uh, chat to gossip but there is something quite interesting in the book she she's got a friend who don't really mind her job but still she doesn't walk into her house and she speaks to her across the road and uh, they say hello, hi, hi, like that. Actually, I wrote it before the pandemic. <laughs> it's like a social <laughs> distancing. It's quite uh, extraordinary, I think. And it shows that we actually always long for personal contact, physical contact, not like, oh, I these days people even don't really speak to each other on the phone 
and uh, okay, I just sent somebody a message. That would uh, cause misunderstanding sometimes. In terms of the wider political landscape, so the the villages, there's a committee in charge of the village, and they always seem to be on the verge of being developed and there's always this expectation that there are good things around the corner but maybe not because it doesn't seem to be happening but maybe it will so it's always tantalizingly close so obviously this is a a communist country how much did you want to talk about the communism the effect that the communism was having on people or did you feel it wasn't actually relevant to the story it's not a communism anymore i think i mean it's still a socialist country and uh, when i was little and we heard more about it and the, the system is still the same I don't really talk about politics but I don't mind to say a bit about this I actually uh, spoke to my my friend who is from Xinyihe village about uh, the development of their village and she said that at, at some point yes somebody wanted to build some houses there but they they asked her too much and uh, so the committee said oh you must pay this or that and uh, then they said oh that's too expensive so maybe more than once and it didn't work in some villages in China and the villagers are really rich because the committee they are very able so it depends on the people not not the system itself I think it's quite flexible and uh, the government also encourages people the committees and the the villages they can open like uh, factories work with the people outside the area thanks for that Wenyan we'll come back to you in uh, just a moment but we'll hear your second choice of music now which is an extract from Vorjak's New World Symphony why this one? This one actually is very popular in China. I knew about this one and listened to this all the time. I like Czech culture and the literature. And uh, whenever, especially when I'm homesick, I listen to it. And uh, I feel very sad. But uh, because of that, it makes me stronger. It makes me think, why am I here? Why am I here if I'm sad? Okay. Do I still want to be here? It actually helps me think. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, books. And we're talking on Bookmark today to Wenyan Lu about her novel, The Funeral Crier. Uh, Wenyan... The attitudes to women in rural China, uh, I don't know how um, representative this novel is, but 
it's not great <laughs> being a woman in that situation. It doesn't seem very forward thinking. She's re repeatedly abused by her husband, verbally abused. Uh, her daughter is having a slightly different life in the city. So is that true? Is there that this contrast between rural and urban? And, and is it still quite worrying for women in China? I wouldn't generalise anything. This story happens in a remote village in China. It could happen in Paris or London. So that's my thinking. The expression that I love that you... Well, I love it, but it, it again, it's it's slightly worrying. Is this expression damaged shoe to refer to a, a woman who's had multiple relationships? Yeah. Is the sexual politics in China, is, are women judged differently to men in terms of, you know, what's acceptable in a relationship? Yes, I think uh, it's a damaged shoe. People still use it. And uh, if a girl has had uh, multiple boyfriends or uh, if they have lived uh, with man before they get married, if they actually marry that, the man who they have lived with, that's fine. But otherwise, uh, they have a bad reputation. And uh, some men still want to marry virgins. Is it the same for women living in the city? Because the daughter's having quite a, a different experience of relationships. She lives in Shanghai. In cities, I think people don't mind it too much. And uh, it's case by case, I imagine. But uh, lives of girls are much easier in big cities. The ritual that we talked about surrounding death, absolutely fascinating. And it did make me think that it's more openness, it seems, in China, or in, and certainly in the China you're describing, about death. I mean, the families talk about making death outfits, the outfit that they will be cremated in. W would you agree with that, that there's, there's more openness about the end of life? There is more openness in villages than in cities. In big cities, in modern cities like Shanghai, people don't really talk about it. And uh, in villages, that's what I uh, know about from reading books and watching films, uh, because in China, a lot of films and books are about the countryside life. And we talked about the political context. What's the religious context uh, of this novel? What would be the religion of the people who, who lived in rural China? They're not religious, and most Chinese people are not religious. Um, there's no prayers or any kind of talk of, serious talk of an afterlife? No, no. Actually, quite interesting, people, a lot of people think Chinese people are Buddhists or something. Most people are not. Thank you. Putting that right. Well, let's uh, let's move from China now to Paris and hear from Melanie Levinson. Melanie has worked for the World Health Organization, the UN and the World Bank. A Jewish girl in Paris is her debut novel, set between 1940s Paris and Washington, D.C. in 2006. The Jewish Chronicle described it as an elegantly drawn tale with a pacey narrative, relatable heroines and an eye for historical detail. When I talked to Melanie, I started by asking her to tell me more about the extraordinary coincidence that inspired this novel. Yeah, so when I got married to my husband, Pascal, 
I became the namesake of his cousin once removed. Melanie Levinson, the first Melanie Levinson, she lived in Paris uh, as a young student during the 1940s while France was occupied. And she was deported to Auschwitz in 1943. Nobody really knows if she survived or not, but the more realistic assumption is that she didn't. My husband only learned about this part of his family in 2005 when his other cousin once removed, Jacobina, mentioned Melanie. And Jacobina herself didn't know for a very long time that she had a half-sister because her father, Lika, never talked about her. And only on his deathbed, he finally revealed to Jacobina that he had had a first wife and a first child to whom he lost all contact during the war. And in this very emotional moment of his imminent passing, he made Jacobina promise to look for Melanie. Jacobina did. She spent almost 12 years trying to find the half-sister she never knew. She contacted researchers and organizations around the world. For example, she wrote to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., which has an extensive archive of Holocaust victims. She contacted the American Red Cross. She wrote to the Shoah Memorial in Paris and also to the International Tracing Service in Bad Arolsen in Germany. And the responses she received, she compiled those in a folder which she gave to Pascal. And he handed this over to me a few years ago. So I immediately immersed myself in Melanie's tragic fate. And I saw faxes, copies of faxes written in German by high-ranking SS officials confirming Melanie's departure from Drancy, which was a transition camp close to Paris, to get to Auschwitz. I also found a, a copy of her registration card at Drancy, that concentration camp in France. So when I saw all this, which was, yeah, I mean, very hard for me to look at seeing my own name on these documents and some of them written in German, which is my mother tongue, I really felt I needed to create a memorial for Melanie. I didn't just want to write a documentary, but I wanted to write, write something different, something beautiful and something that would link my life to hers. And that's how a Jewish girl in Paris was born. So this is a story literally with your name on it, but that comes when you're writing it with a big responsibility, I would have thought. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that exactly 70 years after the first Melanie Levinson disappeared, a second Melanie Levinson joins my husband's family coming from Germany. And the fact that I also studied in Paris as when I was young, just like the other Melanie, that was very, very emotional for the whole family. I mean, the Jacobina, the real Jacobina, she started crying and crying of of joy and also of pain in a way. But um, they all were very supportive and really wanted me to, to write this because it, it's such an incredible coincidence. And since publishing this book, have you found out any more information? Has anything more come forward? No, the the 12 year research, Jacobina, that, that, has, that was finished. 
but I did go to the Holocaust Museum and they did remember Melanie Levinson's case and Jacobina looking for her. So that, that was also a beautiful moment, finding that same person who was in charge of these files back then still there. So oh, I remember this name. This is incredible that you're coming here. So the research of lost victims always continues. I mean, there's so many files and they never really stop. And there were some letters where they're saying, telling Jacobina, this is what we have. This doesn't mean she really did die in Auschwitz, but that's all we know. We cannot tell you for sure. Nobody knows. I mean, there's so many files, so many documents, so many people's lost. We cannot know. So it's based on Melanie's story, but what is it about a Jewish girl in Paris? What is the story in the novel? So the, the book is a dual love story. One is set in Paris in the 1940s and one in Washington, D.C. in 2006. And as the plot unfolds, it is revealed how a dark family story threatens the love of the couple in Paris, the first couple, and at the same time enables the encounter of the other couple in Washington, D.C. And I can see why Paris in the 1940s, given the subject matter of the novel, why Washington, D.C. in 2006? Why that place in that time? Washington, D.C. is where I lived and worked for a long time. So as I said before, I wanted to link Melanie's life and my life. So I used some of my own experiences. But on the other hand, I also thought it was easier to write about something I knew really well. And I worked for a long time at the World Bank and I lived almost 10 years in Washington. So it felt easier to write about that place. And for the Paris in the 1940s part, what were your sources of research there? That was the most challenging part, because if you want to write fiction that is credible and authentic, you really had to understand not just the historic facts, but more importantly, how daily life was back then. How much did a baguette cost? What did Parisians have to eat? How did the repression of the Jews start? And how did it progress? What was available on the black market? And in addition, I had to know about all these laws the Nazis had introduced. For example, Parisians had to set the clock forward by one hour to Berlin time. They had to cover headlights of their cars with a dark cloth, etc. It really took me a long time to understand, to get a good picture of life back then. And I read lots of books and websites, but I also, I thanks to the internet, I could access the Figaro from back then. I could read all the the front pages between 1940 and 1943. And I also found a very interesting journal in German. It was called the Wegleiter. It was a sort of time out magazine for German soldiers based in Paris. And it had lots of recommendations for restaurants and bars and, and movies. So I'm using that in my book and the opera they visit in my book, the, the protagonists or the movie they watch was really running at that time. And on a practical level, how did you write it? Did you alternate between the two places or did you write the Paris part first and then the Washington part or did you flip? So at the beginning I started to alternate, but then that became really hard because every time a new chapter started, I had to jump the timeline and go to a totally different world. 
So then I dropped that plan and first wrote the, the part in Washington, D.C. And then I, I, I immersed myself into the past and only wrote about Paris. And that was much easier. And has writing this made you feel more connected to your husband's past and your own past? Yes, absolutely. I think discovering Melanie Levinson's story and studying that time deeply and thoroughly in, in all its very details helped me to become a different German, a German of more consciousness and a different awareness. Of course, as a German, I, I learned a lot about the Holocaust. I always read about the Holocaust. It was taught in school from early, from early age on. But it's a completely different story if part of your family is is affected by was affected by the Holocaust. And learning from my husband, whose father was in a concentration camp and escaped to Canada, in, that really changed my life and how I think about my the, the, my my country's history and my past. And what's next for you? What are you writing at the moment? So I'm currently working on um, a completely different story. It's it's more about motherhood. It's a refugee story. I lived a long time in California, and I I lived through a huge refugee crisis from like the refugees coming from Central America into California and working there illegally. So it, against that background, it's it's a story about loss and motherhood, and also the incredible love a mother has for her child even if she loses her son because he has to leave the country and then tries to find him again so I'm working on that book right now and hope to have it finished this summer and a Jewish girl in Paris by Melanie Levinson is published by Pan we've been talking on bookmark today to Wen Yan Lu about her novel The Funeral Cry which is published by Alan and Unwin so, Wenyan, what's what's next for you? Are you going back to that first novel that we talked about at the beginning, or have you got something else that you're working on? I actually have written a new novel since uh, I had this book deal, and it's finished. Yay! <laughs> and what's happening to that? That one is historical. It's about a group of uh, women who have decided not to get married. They live in a community. That sounds great. I look forward to that. Thank you. And a question that we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I'm sorry, I'm not reading anything. (laughs) It's not allowed. That's not allowed. Uh, But uh, yesterday I realised it was uh, World Book Day. I thought, oh dear, I should read something. I decided I'm going to read A Tale of Two Cities again. That's one of my favourite books. Well, good luck with this novel. I really enjoyed it. I learned such a lot. A lot about. We haven't even talked about Mahjong, which oh, is, okay. is kind of key in the book. It's one of the key things in the book. I'd have to come back another time for that. Mm. Uh, but uh, a heads up that for our next show... Our featured guest is Athene Donald talking about her book, Not Just for the Boys, Why We Need More Women in Science. We'll also hear from Livy Michael talking about her debut novel, Reservoir, about hidden memory, and Kerry Hadley-Price chatting about her novel, God's Country, which is set in the black country. But we'll sign out now, uh, Wen Yan, with your last choice of music, Bark, Six Weeks for Solo, Viola Cello. This is Suite 2 in D minor. 
Why this one? Actually, to be honest with you, uh, we bought this uh, viola album for my daughter because she plays viola. But eventually, my husband and I are always listening to it. And uh, this piece, at some point, it fits the atmosphere of my novel. It's not that sad, but it's not happy. And uh, for my protagonist, she hasn't got a happy life, I would say. But deep down, she is uh, optimistic. I think in the music, I can feel the optimistic and some hope maybe in the future. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.